Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we have on Michael Smith. Michael Smith is a MBA. He got his MBA from the University of Warwick, Warwick Business School in the UK. Uh, he got his MBA with distinction, and he is a former uh, manager at Johnson and Johnson, where he worked for for six years. And and as a manager here, he was responsible for a, a variety of acti- uh, business activities, including. Uh, hiring, and he's gone on to work as a, a sales director at Align Technology, uh, and he's currently the group director of Developed Edge. Uh, so a lot of experience in industry, and the reason we brought him on is because we want to know from a manager's perspective uh, what PhDs should do to transition into biotechnology, biomedical, and biopharmaceutical uh, positions. Uh, specifically, we're going to touch on topics that include uh, what to do in terms of networking, some advanced strategies there, uh, contract negotiation, uh, what to do with interviewing, and, and importantly, how to build rapport with people before you get the job and after you get the job. Uh, so, so from a management's perspective, what should you as a PhD do throughout the transition process and even after you get the job? Uh, for those of you who are Cheeky Scientist Associates, you have access to the full-length version of this podcast, as always, and as well as our, our live webinars and interviews as they happen. Uh, if you want to get these podcasts uh, delivered to you, uh, to your inbox, if you are, are not a Cheeky Scientist Associate, uh, you want to get these shorter versions, just go to our website, CheekyScientist.com, and enter your email address at, in the top right, and you'll get them delivered to your inbox. Uh, so we're going to jump right in with our interview with Michael Smith. Okay, so the, the, the first thing I want to just jump into is is this idea of, of strategic networking. And, and the, the, the key to strategic networking is, is building relationships in a way where you know, you're, you know, you're going to ultimately get something out of it, but without approaching it that way. And so I guess I just wanted to start off by, by asking you, Michael, like, what, what do you consider networking, strategic networking? What would you say is, is kind of the crux of being an effective networker? Well, I think maybe let's start with what it's not. Um, I think that within the corporate environment, uh, people who are seen to be networking can often come in for some criticism. Um, you know, call it brown nosing, call it you know trying to play one-upmanship, whatever you want. Um, I think that it has a, it has a bad perception. But but let's be clear, that's not what strategic networking is. So if, if I just start by saying that if you if you consider any any model for any profit generating enterprise, there's a bit of a formula which says that on a per head basis or on, a, on an individual employee basis, if you, um, if you pay them less than the value you, they create, or to, to, to flip it around, if they create more value than what you pay for them, then you make a profit on a per head basis. So we'll, we'll get into the we'll get into the to the salary piece later on. But all to say that the whole piece, I believe, about strategic networking, is finding ways to create more value than the next guy beside you, and uh, and picking out those people who uh, you can go and influence and you can demonstrate that value too. So. If I give you an example, um, before I got my last corporate role, uh, which was um, uh, in Invisalign, 
as director of sales for Europe. Before that, I'd been at Johnson & Johnson. And what had happened was that uh, you, you know, I went out of my way to uh, you know, basically to build relationships with everybody, whether they were secretaries, admins, whether they were director or VP level. It didn't matter. Uh, mm. My my belief was that if you build strong relationships with as many people as possible, you create a great foundation for yourself. And what happened was um, around, uh, around a few months before I ended up leaving to go and join Invisalign, we had this crisis situation where we had, uh, we had this huge product recall. And I ended up working very closely with the vice president at the time on this recall. And really up until that point, he knew me. And we spent a little bit of time together, but he'd not really seen me work. And what happened was my boss, so his direct report had, uh, was on holiday, so it was up to me to take that on. And it was interesting because when I spoke to him many months later, um, he ended up offering me the job at Invisalign. He left and he, and he gave me the job. He said to me that the reason why he offered me the job ahead of anybody else who he could, he could have gone and got was that in that crisis situation during that recall that I demonstrated a greater degree of value in his eyes than everybody else, uh, everybody else in the business. So I think that mm. I, I think being patient and finding the right opportunity is key but finding ways to just be as valuable as possible to create as much value as possible to the individuals and the organization is absolutely paramount. That's that's just incredible, uh, incredible example. I, I haven't heard that story before. That that that's uh, I think hits on, a, on several key points. Uh, if you guys guys heard that story, that's almost everything you need to know about strategic networking right there. You know, first Michael said that he he laid the groundwork, right? So he built relationships up with everyone anywhere in the organization. And, and how this might correlate to you is that you know every every person you come into contact with you know, whether or not they're a hiring manager is someone you should be building a relationship with. And not just people that you're working to side by side in the lab or the same people that you're seeing at the same networking events, but everyone from, from the ground up. And, and you should approach it, I think the second kind of takeaway from Michael's story is you should approach it from kind of a long-term mindset. You're not going to shake somebody's hand, you know, and then the next day they're saying, hey, I got a great promotion for you because you talked to me at this yeah. networking event last night. So those long-term relationships, like Michael said, it, it was you know, several months later, if not more, before this opportunity presented itself. And because he had laid the groundwork and, and, and had given over a longer term, he, he was able to get something out of it. And then the final piece, the most important piece, uh, is, is that adding value. And I think a lot of people think of networking as in, if I just hustle, you know, because you like when you go into the lab, you're like, if I can just get as many experiments done correctly, get as much data as possible, get as many papers, I'll be successful. And that doesn't really correlate well to networking. If you go to a networking event and you, and you just say, if I can shake as many hands as possible, get as many cards as possible, then I'll get something in return. That's the wrong way to approach it. You should be approaching it as, where can I add value? What can I do to give? Because if you give enough, when the opportunity opens up like it did with Michael, uh, you'll be given something in return. What do you think about that, yeah, Michael? So Does that sum it up nicely? <laughs> Yeah, no, no I, I think that's a nice summary. I, I mean, the, the three rules that I apply to, um, uh, to this idea of creating value is, is to do it first. So don't wait for somebody else to come to you and think, well, I'll see whether there's this quid pro quo here and there's any opportunity for me to, to, mm. to leverage the relationship. Give value first. Find ways to give value first. S secondly, do it indiscriminately. 
So as I said, regardless of the level of role uh, or the level of the person, if you do it indiscriminately uh, and if you give value to as many people as possible, then you get away from this idea of brown-nosing or one-upmanship or any of that sort of thing. Um, and then the third thing is to do it without expectation. So this sounds difficult, but it, it, it plays to your point and it touches on your point about playing the long game. If the only reason you're trying to create value for somebody is in the hope that they will do something for you, well, they might do, but the chances are that's not really going to work out in the long term. So do it first, do it with as many people as possible, and do it with exp without expectation. And say, okay, let's say you get, you get some conversations started. You're, you're networking, you're at the event, you've gone to you know, different types of events, you're, you're listening. What other things can you do? Like, what does that conversation look like? What are some of the things, you know, some points that you should be looking to do, whether it's you know, asking good questions, whatever else. I know this is, this is something you, you're very, very good at, and I would love to hear your, um, your spin on it. Yeah, so I, I think the point here is, and, and somebody once said this to me, and it really resonated with me a lot, is that the best way to be interesting is to be interested and to go out of your way when you meet people to go and, uh, to go and find out about them. I mean, if you, you know, if you think back to the first date that you went on or, you know, dates that went well or badly, ordinarily the ones that go well are those where you come away and, you know, you feel like you've just been listened to and, you know, the other person has really taken an interest in you. You know, because everybody, everybody wants to be listened to and everybody wants to, um, uh, you know, everybody wants to, to have that connection. So I think mm. that's the first piece to say. Um, you know, the, some, some of the things which, you know, I talked a little bit about in the book, and although the book was written for salespeople, I, I do think that the, the concepts are just broadly applicable. You know, what, one of the first things I talked about in there was this idea of being genuinely curious. So, mm. you know, when you're standing in front of somebody, in fact, I was out for dinner the other night, and a very different scenario, but to, to make a point, the waiter was taking our order, looking around the room, and... You know, he went away and my wife said to me, you know, I, I hate it when, when somebody's so disengaged that they can't even listen to you. And it, it just seems like such a, hmm. like such a hassle and, and, and such a burden for them. So I, I think to, to, to be present, to be genuinely curious, I think is a, is a, is a really big thing. And in order to do that, you, you, know, you need to apply this idea of active listening. And people say to me, how do I know if I'm active li actively listening? Well, you're not thinking about other stuff. That's the simple answer. You know, you're not yes. thinking about what I need to do on the shopping on the way home or I didn't reply to that email or I need to book that trip. You know, you are present and you're engaged and you are genuinely curious. So I think, that, I think that's a big thing, a real big thing. Yeah, that's great. And that is the number one thing. You know, just to... Uh, Every time that I've gone to a networking event and I've gone with the mindset, I'm going to go there and I'm going to get as many leads as possible and I'm going to get something out of this. I've always fallen flat on my face, not gotten anything out of it, never developed any relationships. But the events that I've gone to where I said, okay, I'm going to go there, I'm just going to try to get along with one person, try to make one strong connection, just really listen and act interested and try to learn something new, those have always led... To, to long-term relationships and to opportunities. I mean, that's how, that's how, you know, Michael, that's how we met. And so I think right. that mindset is critical. Now, there are some strategic things you can do also. I mean, listening and being interested is strategic, but on a more practical level, one thing that I do, and it doesn't matter what event I've gone to, I find out who some of the, the key people are. And usually you can find out online, maybe they're the event organizers, for example. And they have a page up. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, there's lots of different online 
uh, apps and stuff now for different meetups, whether it's meetup.com or wherever you're finding out the information about the networking event. You can find out who the organizers are, if they're speakers. Read up about them for a little bit. Find some interesting information about these people. This is something that I always do. And by inf interesting information, don't just go to see what publications they've done, for example. Find out something personal. I mean, even if it's, you know, do they have kids? Uh, do, did they do something interesting in their past? Like maybe they played a specific sport. Find that out because that will give you material to ask questions with. And asking questions is the key of, uh, of acting, you know, not acting, but actually being interested, to having good questions to come up with. So, so I, I would recommend doing that. And, and anytime I go into a conversation with one of these people, I always assume, okay, for every like 30 minutes that they're going to talk, I might get two minutes of talking out of it. So you basically want to get them talking as much as possible because letting other people talk to you is what makes you memorable. And I'll repeat that again. Asking people good questions to get them to talk to you is what makes you memorable to them. Michael, what's your take on that? Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that the other interesting piece here is that, um, as you say, if you, can, if you can find out little bits, little snippets of, um, of information and data about people, people that you want to go and build a relationship with, it allows you to therefore create value for them in a much more bespoke way, customized way. So for mm -hmm. example, if you found out that somebody that you wanted to see was really into college football or whatever it was, then you, know, you, you could tailor the conversation, you could find ways to add value for them. So in my book, um, I, I listed out 90 ways that you can create value for people. 90 ways and challenge yourself to do it on a, as a 90-day challenge. Just add value to one person every day for 90 days and see what happens. Um, so I, I think that plays in very nicely with this idea of getting to know people and find out a bit of information about them. So what it will look like is you'll make a new connection at, at, at a networking event, event, for example. You'll have done your research or you'll ask good questions, you'll be very engaged, you'll let them talk and talk and talk, and eventually they'll ask you one question, and that's when you hit them with your elevator pitch, and that's the full connection. You exchange contact details, that's a successful, uh, that's a successful networking uh, relationship starting off, and then following up with them and building on the relationships important too. Uh, did, did I leave anything out, or what's your take on that, Michael? No, I, I think you covered it quite nicely. Uh, you know, as I said, it's something which I don't, I, I genuinely don't believe that I do very well. Um, but yeah, I think it's something you do very well, and, and I've seen others do it. And I think it makes such a massive difference because ultimately, you know, you want them to leave, you know, with that with that key sentence in their mind. So it was one of the things I talked about last Wednesday about saying, you know, maybe think about what that sentence is and get it onto your CV. You know, get it onto your mm. <coughs> get it onto your material so that it's very clear what that is, and take the time to revise. You know, to to hone that and uh, and to revise that. So, uh, no, I think it's I think it's critical. And we'll just kind of use this to segue into the interview because your elevator pitch, pitching yourself, that's that's what the interviews uh, that you're going to be going on in industry are about, and, and they're going to be structured a little bit differently than what you might be used to in academia. So, Michael, I guess coming back to you, I was hoping that you could maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, maybe some stories with some teaching points about the, some of the interviews that you've been on or what you think are some, some key things to consider once you've gone to the networking events, you've made a connection, you've got a referral, you have an interview set up, what kind of things should you, should you be thinking about at that point? 
All right, so I, so I'm, I'm going to put this into <coughs> into into three sections. The first is in terms of your your image and your appearance when you when you go to the interview. You know, I, I have to say, I haven't interviewed. I don't know how many how many people, hundreds. You know, you you do. We, you know, we all told that we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but we do, right? When somebody comes into the room, you make a snap judgment about the way they look and um, you know, the way they present themselves and, and their image. So one, one of the first interviews that I did when I was a young sales manager, <coughs> um, a guy turns up and he had a, he had a white shirt on and a, a gray suit. And uh, he walked in and he said, uh, could, I, could I take my jacket off? And I said, yeah, that's, that's perfectly fine, no problem. He took his jacket off and he had black stains all over his white shirt. And I'm thinking, God, that's really weird. And so I, I, I had to say to him, you know, sorry, did you, do you know that you've got black stains on your <laughs> shirt? And he said to me, uh, he said, oh, yeah, well, what happened was I left my shirt in the, uh, in the boot of the car last night. And I had a, a bottle of engine oil in there, and the engine oil leaked all over my shirt. And I, I thought, God, that's an incredible thing to do, to turn up in an interview looking like that and, and being so sort of blase about it. Needless to say, this guy didn't get the job. Um, but I think that, you know, it was one of those where, you know, for an hour interview, you've already decided within 30 seconds that it was a waste of time. So I, I think that, um, you know, don't, don't leave your shirt in the back of the car with the engine oil is, a, is obviously a key takeaway. But make sure that you're dressed appropriately. Make sure that your image and the way that you look and the way that you present yourself and, and, and the manner in which you walk into that room for the first time, that it, it tells the, the, you know, the individual or the individuals who you're going to be interviewing with all they need to know about you and, uh, and not give them any reasons initially to, uh, yes. to start to put barriers up. Well, and if so I, I can just jump in, yeah, sorry, if I can jump in real quick, because that's such a great example. And, and you guys, I, I want you to really hear what Michael's saying. And I know as academics, we might think like, well, I'm above dressing up, okay? I'm all about the mind and, and not how the body looks. You know, you get a lot of this stuff, and, you know, especially because, uh, you know, prof uh, if you're, when you're a professor, a good day is like wearing a belt, right? And I totally understand that. But when you're going into an, you know, when you're going into an interview, it's different. Even if the the culture at the place you're going to is really relaxed and people are going in in jeans and polos or t-shirts, whatever, you still dress up to the nines or all the way uh, when you're going in on that interview. And it's it's because those snap judgments are being made. People. When you're interviewing, you might do a couple interviews tops. You're not going to spend more than maybe a day or two uh, with the organization that's interviewing you, and they're going to take every little thing that you bring to the table, everything that you present, uh, they're going to put it under careful review. So it's just something that, that you need to do. Uh, so I, I want to move on from uh, interviewing to negotiation. Now, in my experience, Negoti the negotiation has already occurred once you have gotten a callback. Once you're going on the interviews, you're already negotiating. I mean, first, you're already negotiating for that position, right? You're, you're selling yourself at that point, what you bring to the table, what they would have to give up uh, to get that job. And at the same time, they're also trying to fill you out to see, you know, how desperate you are for that job, uh, especially for, for academics. Or, or they're filling you out by asking questions like, what you, what you make previously? Uh, so, so, Michael, maybe you can tell me a little bit about that since, y you know, you've given a lot of these interviews. What are some of the, the questions you want to, that you're trying to get answered on your end to help you make decisions about whether it's salary or whatever else? Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about how that works. 
Yeah, so if you think back to the formula that I discussed at the start, which is this idea that on a per head basis, if you pay them less, and let's look at it from this point of view, if you pay them less than the value you create, you make a profit per head. So uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the reality of that is that it's not in an employer's interest to pay you more. Uh, as obvious as it may sound, you know, mm. if, you can, if you can imagine how an organization will run their P&L and run their operating expense, they will have a budget associated with each role, with each, with each uh, headcount, and they'll want to stay within that envelope. You know, they're not going to want to flex 10, 15% higher. Uh, you know, if anything, they'll want to save money on their budget per head, and they want to reinvest that elsewhere and, and, and make a saving. So it's not in an organization's interest to, to, to pay you more. So I think that, you know, going back to some things we talked about earlier, the, the way to approach that from an interviewee's perspective is to start to be able to demonstrate, you know, how you can create value. You know, what are you going to bring to the organization over and above what is required in terms of the job description um, and, and start to differentiate yourself that way. Because you know that 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 really is the only way to do it. I, I mean, if I if I think at my my corporate career, over um, you know over 12 years, my salary increased tenfold based on what I started uh, on in my first role after leaving university to, to when I left the um, mm. the director of sales role. And I have to tell you that I never once asked for a uh, I never once asked for salary increase during that time. So you know you, the, the obvious question then is how do you how do you uh, how do you create a tenfold increase in your salary for you over a 10, 11 year period? Mm. Well, you, you you do it by doing the things that we've talked about about you know about positioning yourself uh, you know about you know networking broadly um, about showing that you can create more value than the person beside you and uh, and, and ma- making yourself a valuable asset because the, the reality is that within an organization, there are those individuals who are paid disproportionately more for the roles that they do, disproportionately more for the roles they do. In, in other words, hmm. you know, in, in, in terms of bell curve, you have people, uh, you know, at the far right-hand side and the far left-hand side uh, who are paid either disproportionately more or, or less than the, the majority. And it's about understanding, you know, how can you set yourself up in a way that positions you as being one of those disproportionately, you know, higher earning employees. Um, so I think that's, that, that, I think that's key. The, the second thing is that, again, depending on the culture, um, you know, because I, I do think that matters, you know, the culture in terms of the, the country that you work, the, the, the organization that you operate in, they may have particular... Um, uh, particular views as to with the way they manage salary increases. I, I heard a really interesting take on this um, from, I, you know I like this book, Isaiah, it's Delivering Happiness by Tony <laughs> Shea. Um, and and he, t- he talked about salary increases in there. And he said that, that they did some research into what made a happy employee. And, uh, and, and happiness is driven by um, a feeling of connection, it's driven by uh, feeling part of something bigger or you know, being tied to a mission. It's about having perceived control and about making perceived progress. So in terms of the control, the perceived control, they would just have annual salary increases for their people. But what they did was to allow their employees to have perceived control. Uh, they, would, uh, they would offer them the opportunity to go on 15, 20 training courses over a period of time. And the more courses they went on, the higher their bump in salary. So the control moved away from the employer and to the employee for them to take control of their, uh, of their salary increases. Yeah, that, and that's all uh, very valuable information. And, and you know, it would be good. Hopefully more and more companies will take that approach. 
you, you talked, you covered a lot of ground there, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to chunk it down a little bit for for you guys. Uh, so, so Michael said he said P&L, uh, and for a lot of you might not know what that is. It's, it's it just means a profit and loss statement. And, and the key point here is, like Michael said, these companies, it's just about it comes down to the bottom line. Most of them, they'll, they'll get a headcount approved or you know a new headcount approved every year, which means how many people they can bring on board, and that's it. And they'll even they'll get a budget, and and for the most part, it just comes down to the bottom line. So when it comes to your salary you're going to have to, you know, to fight for it. And by fight, I mean negotiate. And it's, it's, there's a lot of studies on this too. The higher salary you start with at a company, the higher your salary will, will go while you're at that company. So you, when you join a new organization, when you join your first job, you want to get that salary up as high as possible. And I, I, do, think, I do think it's important when you're, when you're joining just to, to realize that the kind of negotiating game that's being played a little bit with you. And this might be different for, for so, some countries versus others, but it, it's, it's important to know. And like Michael said, he said, it really just comes down to value. You're going to get paid for how valuable you are. And I'm stressing these points because I've had, a, you know, a lot of you have, have come to me asking questions about uh, taking jobs where you're going to get paid much less than you're worth. I'll give you an example. One, one of the current cheeky scientists, other cheeky scientist consultants is Colin White. And he was getting paid significantly less than he was worth when, when him and I first started working together. We worked one-on-one uh, -on -one together and, and it was getting paid far less than he was worth. Because, and he was getting paid that amount because that's, what he, that's all that he thought he was worth. Uh, there, there's an, another client that is in the, in the U.S. and in Texas that, that, I'm, that I'm working with, and he was getting job offers for jobs that he should have been paid about, a, you know, a, a hundred, easily $100,000 a year, and they were offering him like $40,000, and they were doing it because they knew he was desperate. Like, he went in there basically and, and told them right up front that he was desperate, this was the only job that he was looking for, and, you know, he wanted it. He thought that this would help them give him the job or, or give him a higher salary. I, I don't know if he thought maybe because they feel sorry for him or because it would just show that he was all into this one job, but it was a mistake and it hurt him. So when you go into an interview, you, you need to present yourself, you know, especially in industry, you need to present yourself confidently, right? Just, just confidently, just authentically and confidently. You got to present yourself like you know your own value. And this, to, to, if you want to know, you know what that position is worth, you can obviously do your research online, but also know that you should be a little bit above that and, and come up with reasons why. I mean, given your training, everything else that you've done, you know, the more you can build up that belief in yourself, uh, the more you'll project that when you go in uh, to, to your interview. And that's when the, the negotiation really starts. And this is what I call cr is creating leverage. And the best way to create leverage is to increase your options. So whoever has the most options at a negotiating table is the person most likely to win. So if you're going into an interview or negotiations with a job and you have 10 other job offers, your attitude is going to be a little bit different than if you go in there and you have no job offers. And you're probably thinking, well, like, well, what if I only have that one job offer? Then you've got to do whatever you can to you know, keep pushing, keep putting your fillers out there, keep sending out your resumes, creating referrals, networks, and try to have you know, multiple interviews at the same time so you don't feel that pressure to take whatever, whatever they give you. You can also do other things. You know, expand, your network is very valuable. We're spending so much time on, on your network because the more you're perceived as a thought leader, as a person who's well-connected, uh, the, the more valuable you are, the more leverage you have in an interview, in a negotiation. 
so, so Michael, just to, just to sum up with this whole process of networking, interviewing, negotiating, you know, let's say it all goes smoothly, you get the job, you're about to show up on the first day, you know, if it's a larger organization, you might be put through one to two weeks of orientation. You know, what, what kind of things do you recommend in terms of, you know, building rapport quickly with the team when you show up, starting off on the right foot and, and creating a good first impression? So I, I, think, I think the key is to, as I said earlier on, is to take the time to, um, to go and meet as many people as possible and take the time to, to be open and friendly and interested in, uh, in as many people as possible in the business. Because, again, I can tell you that, especially in large corporations, you know, you'll often have waves of intakes coming through. You know, tens of people at any one time will go through some sort of orientation or reduction process. And it's commonplace for four to six weeks in that the management team would sit and review the latest intake and, and start to make some early assessments as to who those people are, you know, how they're, how they're performing in the, in the early part of their role. So, you know, it's, it's, not about, um, it's not about excelling in your role in that period of time because it's unlikely that you will, but it's, a, it's about excelling in terms of, you know, demonstrating that you, you're willing to build relationships with people and you're willing to, to go about your job in the right way um, and that you want to be interested in, 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 in the people within the organization. So, I, I, mm. you know, for me, when you start, make that your, make that your goal. That's great. And, and that's really the key point that I, that I wanted to make here is that, you know, and this is a mistake that I have personally made uh, several times, and I, I think a lot of academics make this, is because when you, you're working in a lab, for example, your job is to get there and start working on day one and, and learn things on your own and just, just get down to business. But when you go into a, a job, especially for a larger corporation and industry, you know, you're going to feel pressure that you're going to want to perform and start working right away and, and show that you, they made the right decision hiring you, but that's, that's the last thing you want to do, and that's not, that's not even what they want you to do. They want you to go into a period of what's called deep observation and relationship building. You should go there and deeply observe everything that's going on around you. Just say for a couple of weeks, I'm just going to meet everybody, take everything in, and you know, get, get acquainted with how the processes work, what the culture is like. And if you do that, you'll actually make a better first impression, especially with higher management, anyone who, you know, who sees you, than if you try to go in there and you isolate yourself and, and you just try to, to work or get something done. Because the truth is you, you won't know how things work there uh, until you build these relationships, uh, until you go through that period of deep observation. If you want to learn more about anything Michael's talked about, it's all in his book. It's Go Naked, Revealing the Secrets of Successful Selling. And it's not just selling products, it's selling yourself, it's building relationships. That book is about relationships. Uh, Michael, wh where, where can they find you online if they want to uh, sign up for more of your, your material or read more of your stuff? Yeah, so, so if there's anything I can do for anybody, if they have any questions, uh, they can, uh, probably the best thing to do is to go to uh, gonakedselling.com and, uh, and we can connect there. All right, great. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. Thank you all for joining. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another Cheeky Scientist Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. Uh, today we were talking with Michael Smith on uh, management, management's perspective of PhD transitions into industry. Uh, lots of great advice here. Uh, you'll have access to this 
on the Cheeky Scientist website as well as the Cheeky Scientist YouTube page. If you listened and you enjoyed it, make sure you put a comment on the YouTube page or on the Cheeky Scientist website. If you would like to get these delivered to your inbox directly, go to CheekyScientist.com and email subscribe in the top right. Uh, that's the fastest way to do it. And you'll have these uh, highlights from our podcast delivered to you. If you want the full-length podcast and you want to get access to our live webinars, our live interviews, and all of our training materials, you can join the Cheeky Scientist Association. Uh, and, and you can get on the waitlist there anytime at CheekyScientist.com backslash association. Uh, so hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, until the next podcast, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. <laughs>